Welcome to Live from Size Lounge, weekly conversations with alumni of Iowa State University. At the ISU Alumni Association, we strive to facilitate the lifetime connection of cyclones everywhere, communicating, connecting, and celebrating cyclone pride. This series is made possible thanks to the more than 43,000 members of the Alumni Association. If you are interested in staying connected to the university and receiving all the benefits and services of being a member, visit isualum.org to learn more. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome into Live from Size Lounge. My name is Matt Van Winkle with the ISU Alumni Association. Thanks to everyone tuning in here to our live broadcast and watching or listening to this replay on one of our social media channels or on our podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Deborah Turner. Deborah is a 1973 Iowa State graduate with a degree in distributed studies. She went on to receive her Doctor of Medicine from the University of Iowa, where she completed her residency in OBGYN. Dr. Turner practiced gynecologic oncology for 35 years, enhancing university programs across the country, teaching residents and students along the way. Over the past decade, Turner has been involved with the League of Women Voters here in Iowa and at the national level. Earlier this year, she was elected to serve as the 20th president of the League of Women Voters of the United States and chair of the Board of Trustees of the League of Women Voters Education Fund. So please help me welcome Dr. Deborah Turner. Hey, Deborah. Hi, Matt. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. And we were talking before we started here. So you are not too far away from Iowa now. You're, you're over in Omaha, right? Yes, I live in Omaha now, but it's like I tell all my friends in Omaha, I'm just an Iowan who just happens to live across the bridge. <laughs> That's right. A stone's throw away from yeah. here from the great state of Iowa. Well, well, you, you grew up in Mason City, just north of Ames here, not too far from Iowa State. So tell us about why you ended up choosing Iowa State. Was it that close proximity and not, not being not too far away from us here? Or why did you ch choose to be a student here at Iowa State? And what do you remember about your time here as well? Well, you know, it was close proximity was nice, but actually my brother went to Iowa State and he was a few, about three, four years ahead of me. And so I can remember still the very first time we took him to college and I was in awe and I would visit him several times over the years. And I just fell in love with the university, with the campus and my brother absolutely, as I told you earlier, he bled red and uh, gold. So he was so Iowa State and, you know, I kind of admired my big brothers. So I decided this is the place where I need to be. And it turned out to be that way. It was just an awesome and amazing uh, four years there. So what do you what do you remember about being a student here back in the 70s? Obviously, things were much, much different than they are today. What do you remember about campus and being a student at that time? Yeah, campus, obviously, there weren't as many students on campus at that time, but there were quite a few of us, and coming from Mason City to Ames was a big switch. But I was on campus in a very interesting era. When I was on campus, it was, we were still having the Vietnam War. There were, you know, student disrest across the country. There was still just the edges and the ends of the civil rights movement. And everybody was in growing pains trying to figure out where we were going and where the country was going. And uh, so it was a different time and a different era. But it turned out to be a very good place to go through all of that because there's interesting thing about the Iowa State and Iowa State community. It is a community. You felt like it became your home 
you know, you felt even with all the unrest in the world and things that were going on, it was like a place where you could find yourself and ground yourself. And I think that was one of the really key things that helped me. You know, I really felt like it was my home away from home, so to speak. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, go mm -hmm. ahead. Sorry. Oh, and I was lucky because I, I, I did some interesting things. I did join a sorority. And at that time, there were no African-American sororities on campus. And so that was a really, that was a very interesting time and moment for me and for the university, because this was something new for them too. And I also, I played in the band. So I got to go on band tours and I had a wonderful time in the, actually my first year, everybody had to spend in the dorms. So uh, I had dorm life, you know, we had key cards in, we had curfews and all those things at that time. But you were learning how to basically live in a world on your own and make big decisions about what you were going to do. And so there were scary times, but I have really good friends from that time who helped me through it. And I don't think I honestly can say this with true conviction. There's no other school that I could have gone to at that time that I felt would have been as good for me as Iowa State was. So I, and I say that without prejudice, okay? I'm being very, very objective. <laughs> well, in talking with one of my colleagues, and you mentioned you were part of a sorority, you, you were part of a sorority where you were the only African-American woman in that sorority, correct? Right. And, and you, you were know, the president of that, and you were the president of that sorority, right? Yeah. Yes, I was a president. In fact, it was interesting times in America because there mm -hmm. basically were, you know, sororities pretty much were, if you're on a campus like Iowa State, they were pretty much had no minorities in them. And then there were minority uh, sororities on schools that were like, for example, the historical black universities. So me going through Rush was really a big deal for Iowa State. And I didn't realize till the end of Rush how engaged the whole university was and how engaged the administration was and how they were watching me go through this process. And I, and I was the first African-American uh, woman to pledge to a sorority. I was the first one actually to pledge to that national sorority. Mm -hmm. And it took a request up to the national level to allow the local uh, chapter to pledge me. And all this stuff was kind of going on in the backgrounds. And I was just enjoying being another student on campus, uh, going through Rush with all the friends that I was making in that. And some of the stuff behind the scenes, I wasn't aware of until after it was all over and done. Wow. I didn't realize that. So, yeah, mm -hmm. you would have started in their late 1960s, right? Around mm -hmm. 1969 or so. Yeah. Well, after you graduated from Iowa State, you went on to receive your medical degree from the University of Iowa and went on to become a gynecological oncologist. Why did you decide to pursue that specialty? Well, I, I decided to pursue gen oncology because this might sound like a silly thing, but because I fell in love with the patient population. When I was in med school, mm -hmm. I did a rotation as a senior on the, on the gynecologic oncology service. And the physicians that were my mentors were just awesome. But more importantly, I realized I really, really, really loved the patient population. And the specialty is kind of unique because gen oncology, you take care of the whole person. So, you know, you did your own surgery, you do your own chemotherapy, you know, you take care of their illnesses. So you took care of the whole patient as opposed to like other specialties, like for a medical oncologist, which my medical oncologist guys are some of my best, uh, and women are some of my best friends, but they do the medicine side, and then there are surgical oncologists. Well, gynecologic oncologists have to be both. 
So that's what I liked about it too. You took care of the whole person and you became part of their family. So I have so many special friends still from the days of when I was practicing gynecology. And I see some of my patients still today I'll see and or I'll get messages from their families remembering those days. So it's a very special specialty. I hope more people engage in it, particularly women. I found this fascinating that, I mean, you spent 35 years or so um, in that practice. And then in 2015, you actually stepped away from your practice to participate in some medical missions um, out in Tanzania. Talk about what called you to doing this um, in, at that point in your life. Well, it was very interesting. I, I had a good friend who was a nurse and some of my best friends were nurses, quite frankly. And she was walking down the hall one day in the operating room when I was practicing in Des Moines. She said, would you like to go to Tanzania with us? And I said, Okay, sure. Didn't even know what she's talking about. I saw her a week later and said, wait a minute, when are you going? What are you going for? And she says, we do medical missions and we need somebody who does gynecology. We don't have a, a gynecologist. And I said, okay. So that was in like in November. And in January, I was on a plane going to Tanzania and taking my kids for the first trip too. And uh, it was like, the reason I did it was because number one, obviously it was interesting and intriguing, but I knew the need was there. But the organization that was doing it really wanted to help. And once I got there, I literally feel like kind of Tanzania is my second home. I fell in love with the country and the people in the country. And you learn a lot of things. I know that one of the things I learned who I think was most critical and made a difference in the rest of my years of practice is that we have so much. We are so fortunate in this country and we have so much more than a lot of other countries have in some ways, but we we can do so much with a lot less. And I learned how to practice medicine without necessarily all the bells and whistles. And we did a great job. Our patients did wonderfully. And that's a really good lesson to learn, particularly when you're a practicing physician. Yeah, I'm sure those experiences were just so eye-opening and uh, just working with the people there had to have been such a thrill for you as, as a uh, physician working here in the States for so long to go to a different country and work must have been quite the eye-opening, but, but very fulfilling experience as well. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing you learn that people are people no matter where you are. And, yeah. you know, we had uh, ran a children's feeding center and did some kids help too. And it's like, kids are kids. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're in yeah. Iowa or Tanzania, kids are kids. And that's yeah. what you learn too on these kind of endeavors. So. Well, my gosh, this year has been so crazy for everybody, but specifically you taking over this new role as president of the League of Women Voters of the United States. This is something that you've been involved with for a while, but talk about how you first got involved with the League of Women Voters. Well, you know, once again, I always believe that a lot of times you become involved engaged in activities or things because you have friends who reach out to you. And so I had a dear friend in Des Moines at that time who said, I'm going to a meeting and it's being held by the League of Women Voters. And it was the educational meeting. I believe it was maybe on like, I either it's either on trafficking or civil engagement in, in, um, in the legislature and I wasn't, I can't remember the name of the topic. Mm -hmm. So I went with her and I was actually fascinated. It was a very good educational meeting. It was well run. The mm -hmm. women who were running it were just awesome. And so I went home and I was just beginning to use computers well. And I pulled up this website for the League of Women Voters. And when I did that, what I looked at all the list of the things that the league was engaged in. And it's just like, this is the organization that I need to belong to 
I have found basically an organization that I think I can be part of for the rest of my life. And so I joined the league and I've been working with the league and gradually uh, doing some leadership role in that ever since then. And it's an incredibly fulfilling organization. And there's something about that I really like, you know, as you may know, is that the league is a nonpartisan organization, which is a difficult, shall we say, uh, path to walk down in in our country right now and actually in the world. And that's one of the special things about it because as a nonpartisan organization, you have to be able to look at things from many sides, you know, determine what your values are and stick with them and deal with things from a policy or a values issue and not from a partisan issue. So that I find very important too. Well, this year we saw record voter turnout mm -hmm. in this last presidential election. Talk about the work that the League of Women Voters did um, across the United States specifically um, in getting people registered to vote and getting people engaged. Well, you know, they we have as over 750 uh, local leagues throughout the country, all 50, uh, all 50 states, also in Hong Kong. Um, and we also have... Um, then we each have state organizations. We're a tri-federated. I guess I should explain that. We're a tri-federated organization. So we have locals, we have state, and then we have national. So we kind of mirror the government, okay? And at each of these levels, depending on where you were, people were doing different things. Of course, one of our big things is voter registration. And most folks see us as folks who are getting voter doing voter registration. And we mm -hmm. registered many, 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 many. We don't even have the, the exact count. Now. I wish I had it for you, but we're still figuring it out. Uh, people across the country this year. We use, uh, basically, we have kind of a three-pronged approach. It's information, registration, and protection. So we inform, we help inform uh, voters. We, taught, we teach them about voting rules, but we also do um, candidate forums. We have uh, education meetings on different issues around what's important and what's coming up in an election. And then, of course, we register, register, register. But then becomes the piece of then we get the vote out because it doesn't do you any good to register people if they don't vote. So that was our really big push this year. But in order to do that, we had to do one of our biggest pieces this year was what we call voter protection. So we were engaged over this last voting section uh, election session, excuse me, with at least 60 or more lawsuits around the country. And the lawsuits were not, uh, the lawsuits were about protecting voters. For example, making sure states had a laws in place, people could cure their votes if something went on, helping to develop and uh, support uh, more mail-in ballots, or I guess mail vote by mail and early voting and pushing those things, to, particularly in this era of COVID to protect people. And so we spent a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of volunteers doing that kind of work. And obviously, if you look at the numbers of people who voted this year, it's been a really great success. And we have partners across the country that we work with. We don't do it all on our own, but we are partners with many of the voting organizations. So, you know, I keep smiling. I can't help it because we're so just tickled about the results of how many people engaged in voting this year. So, yeah. Well, it was historical and the turnout and historical and the fact that Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is set to become the first female, the first African-American. And I, I believe there was the third, uh, she's also Asian-American. Uh, Indian-American. Indian-American, thank mm -hmm. you, uh, to hold 
to hold that office. So talk about, as the president of the League of Women Voters, can you explain the significance for women in the United States to have a, a female vice president? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's amazing. And, you know, and as you know, just as I reiterate, the League does not support candidates, nor does it support parties, sure. but it supports women's women engagement in the in the legislative and the government access. And think about, it was a hundred years ago this year that the League of Women Voters uh, uh, basically was started. And it was a hundred years ago that the right, the 19th amendment was passed for the women's right to vote. So it has taken us a hundred years, let's not even count the years before we got to that, okay, to right. get a woman to one of the highest levels in our government. And there is absolutely no reason that it shouldn't be. So our goal obviously is to get to the point where women at all levels of government are not as seen as something unique or special, uh, but as something that's considered as normal. But if you take that and then you take from that point that not only do we have a woman at this level now in the White House, which is very exciting for all women or should be, is that we have a woman of color who is, you know, African-American, Indian-American, and the daughter of immigrants. And you smile because the majority of people in this country, except for some, are obviously um, right. immigrants. But that is, that is just literally historic. And this will go down as one of the biggest achievements of this decade, probably of this century. And we're going to build on that. We hope to see women coming up behind behind her, so to speak, or along beside her in all levels of government. And, you know, of course, the next step will obviously to be a woman president, because we have to remember that the people who vote the most, the segment of our society that votes the most is women. Our, our um, mm -hmm. right. phrase for this year was women power the vote. And that's very true. So if we're voting the most, we're making a lot of the big decisions. Why aren't we in those offices? We plan on right. being there, so. Well, you bring me to a, a great point, and you mentioned 2020 marking 100 years since the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution gave women the right to vote, but I did a little bit of some research showing that you know 127 women are in the United States Congress, and in every presidential election dating back to 1984, women reported having turned out to vote at slightly higher rates than men. So what are your hopes for women voters in the next hundred years. Do you see that as a continuing trend? Oh, I absolutely do. And the reason I do is because the women who are turning out to vote now are being very passionate about making sure that their their daughters or their sisters or their relatives you know, are being engaged in the process. And quite frankly, it's not that we want men voters to vote too. It'd be wonderful if we voted at a level like this every year, both females, males and females, or all gendered person people. However, the key is that the people who are going to push the envelope at this point are going to be women. And you'd be surprised how many of them are bringing their daughters and their friends' daughters and their nieces, like who I bring my niece, she's involved in everything almost I do. And to to the point where they're engaged in this process. And also because there's so many critical issues that deal with women that are on the ballot or decisions are being made at the higher levels of, you know, Congress or in our state houses or even right. in our 
school boards, you know, or on our, you know, our local legislative groups that women have to have a voice so they make sure the decisions are going to be made that are positive for, for women in this country. Right. Well, gosh, if, even if you look at the state of Iowa, there, what is it, three of the four um, uh, Congress uh, people's, people in Congress are women now, and one of our U.S. senators is a woman here in the state. So a lot of progress being made here, here locally in the state of Iowa. Uh, but Deborah, you know, Iowa State graduates dating back to, you know, hundreds, you know, the hundred plus years that Iowa State has been around, graduates are using their degrees to make their communities, Iowa and the world a better place. How do you feel you've been able to use your education from Iowa State to make an impact? Well, you know, first of all, it's, it's very interesting. When I decided to go to school and I knew I wanted to be a physician, you know, the comment advice made, well, you need to go to a school where there's a medical school because that's where you're going to get the sure. best, best pre-med. And so I talked with a few counselors on that. And, you know, I was already set on Iowa State. And the first thing that helped was that my education, the level of education that I got at Iowa State, my grounding in the sciences, my grounding in how to, you know, study, how to get through and make decisions about your education that are valid. That was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I can't say wouldn't have happened on another campus, but I can tell you that that was really instrumental in Iowa, at Iowa State. And there were great um, administrators and advisors who were there walking along beside me and many of my friends helping us make those decisions. So we just didn't get thrown into a situation and say, good luck, you know, sink or swim. I mean, there was a dedication to making sure that we succeeded. And so that's one thing that helped me. So by the time I was ready to go to medical school and then on to my fellowship and that, I had such an incredible grounding that that helped. The other thing was that the friends that I met along the way. I went to medical school actually with several people from Iowa State and remained friends and we still remain friends today. And uh, so there's this cadre of people throughout this country, actually throughout the world, who have had this grounding at Iowa State that are there to help you along the way, no matter where you're at, that you can reach out to. And that has really made a difference for me. So. I, you know, I can't say enough about the fact that I had a really incredible education and incredible experience. Not that was all great. You know, there were the bad moments. Everybody has those moments in college. That's part of growing up. But it, if I hadn't done it at Iowa State, sometimes I look back and think that I might have been lost in another environment. Who knows? Well, we are so proud to have you as one of our alumni and as a cyclone. And I see maybe a flag behind you that might have Cy on it behind yeah. you. Am I right? <laughs> yes, yes. I have, I have cyclone things all over my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're so glad to hear that you keep representing Iowa State in such a great way. Um, and thanks so much for joining us today. And best of luck uh, with your new role with the League of Women Voters, Deborah. Well, thank you for having me. This was wonderful. And hi to all my cyclone friends out there. Love you all. Bye-bye. I should, I should add a quick comment. We had Janet commented that she remembers you well from her ISU days, and she's so proud of what you've accomplished. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Deborah, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's Deborah Turner. Thanks so much for joining us today. That's it from Size Lounge for this week. However, we won't be live here next week, but stay tuned for a special Size Lounge where we'll be talking with Iowa State alum Brent Bloom of the Cyclone Radio Network as we'll preview the upcoming basketball seasons, which, wow, begin next week for the Iowa State men 
and women. We'll also talk about his job with the Iowa State Foundation and the College of Business. Stay safe and have a great rest of your week and go Cyclones.